Okay. Well, this morning is going to be another one of those, um, I don't know, a lecture. So this is not going to be an Amen Sunday, probably, Michael. I appreciate you sitting back up front for me. Um, uh, I, I, I don't think uh, I, I'd be saying anything that you don't realize if... if um, if I said that really we are we are watching firsthand uh, the implosion <laughs> of of the church, uh, the visible church anyway, and certainly our culture. Um, and, and let me just say, am I? Am I, I can't hear. So let me just say that in saying that it doesn't mean that God's not involved. In fact. I think, I think in some ways we kind of slight God when we say He's involved. Um, like, this is, this is a movement, this is a, something that, that happened globally, and God's going to kind of come alongside and get involved somehow. No. Uh, we, we believe doctrinally and theologically that God has revealed Himself. He is doing this. But in so doing this, never can evil be attributed to Him for doing it. Um, I, can, I can foresee many different scenarios of why God is doing what he's doing, in, not just in our, in our nation, but in, in our world. And that is he is showing those he is shaking those things that can and should be shaken in order to reveal those things that cannot be shaken. Amen. And so um, we, we approach this not from a standpoint of fear, of defeat. We, we do not lose here. <laughs> I may not see it in my lifetime. But we do not lose here. This is God's world. The, 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 the psalm says, this is the, wor- the world is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. He has not abdicated the world to Satan. Uh, the, the other thing that I shared with a couple of you uh, this week is, I had somewhat of an epiphany. What? Ah. God spoke to me. No. Uh, it, it finally dawned on me what, what was what was causing a great deal of my agitation with what's going on in the church, in the professing church, in the visible church, and, and really in our culture, is I kind of equated the, the existence as we've known the United States, that I, I kind of attached the two to the gospel. That, that the, in other words, the demise of the United States meant the end of the world. And that Jesus surely has to come now and rescue us. Now, th- those are two completely separate things. The United States could, in fact, plunge itself. We could plunge ourselves literally into dark ages, the dark ages. And yet, the gospel not skip a beat. The church not skip a beat. Listen, the church has survived in some form. Babylon. The Medo-Persians. The church outlasted the Roman Empire and that beast, Nero. Trust me. Trust the scriptures. We will outlast Biden and his group. So we're going to be addressing uh, uh, an ideology. And and that's why I want to force us to think through this. This is not just a movement. This is not just a political position position. This is a, an ideology, and we're going to uh, walk through some of these things, that, that is a real threat to the church. And I might add, a real threat to the professing church, the visible church, the true church, 
Um, we have to believe, obviously, because of God's persevering grace, that we will, in fact, endure. Um, so we're going to be addressing this issue called critical race theory, but we're going to be limiting it to within the church. In doing that, I'm not suggesting that, um, that, that there's an aspect, that there's a cultural aspect of CRT that the Bible doesn't address. It does. But how do we respond to this in the church? And I begin, really, with this notion of 1 Timothy 4.1, when it says that people will follow doctrines of demons. And this is what I want us to really understand, this movement, this ideology. It, it is, it, it, what I want to try to demonstrate this morning, it is a doctrine of demons. This is not just a political party. It's not a political movement. It is, in fact, a, a, a doctrine, a teaching uh, that uh, finds its source and origin uh, in, in the demonic realm, really. And hopefully I'll be able to demonstrate that this morning. If you remember, we've gone through the postcards, the New Testament postcards. Remember, we went through Jude, and Jude said that I had every intention to write to you about the common salvation we share, and yet I felt compelled to write to you to earnestly contend for the faith, because certain men have slipped in among you. And Peter tells us, introducing damnable heresies. Um, and so we want to earnestly contend for the faith. In order to do that, we have to understand who our enemy is and what our enemy is. And so we're going to be looking at critical race theory today. How many of you, let me put it this way. How many of you on a scale of 1 to 10, with 1 being, I have no idea what critical race theory is or means or teaches, and 10 being, I feel like I'm very conversant in understanding of what critical race theory is. What number would you give? 8. 8? Okay. I'd say 7. 7? 9? 9? Yeah, that's kind of what I expected for, uh, for you guys, that uh, we're, we're, we're not... Um, we, had, we didn't just fall off the turnip truck uh, when it comes to critical race theory. But we need to understand really where it came from. This, is not, this, is, this didn't happen overnight. Um, when I was in seminary, ironically, Denver Seminary, uh, in our, one of my New Testament classes, we went through the book of James. And one of the books that was assigned to us was a book, uh, was, a, was a commentary, it was a small commentary written by Elsa Thomas. Elsa Thomas was a liberation theologian. And it was interesting to read um, a, a liberation theologian's, a re- liberation theology's view on James. Um, but really, critical race theory, in my opinion, really, really would stem to liberation theology. What's liberation theology? Liberation theology began really back in the 1960s in Medellin, Colombia. There was a uh, there was a conference of bishops that met Roman Catholic bishops, and they all they all recognized and understood the threat that Marxism was to them. Marxism had 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 invaded. I'll use that word invaded South America, and and people need to understand. You need. I'm going to say it over and over again. Marxism is not indifferent to the church. Uh, if if Marxism had a bullseye, the Church of Jesus Christ would be right in the center. Uh, and they recognized that. They understood that. And, and, and in essence, what they said is, how do we survive this? Well, they adopted basically the, the adage, if you can't beat them, join them. So what happened was the Roman Catholic Church basically uh, joined um, wedded Marxism with theology. And you've probably heard of 
Che Guevara, who really was the was a leading pro, uh, pro, proponent of this. And, and their, their theology was basically that Jesus came, the gospel, and Jesus came to, um, to, to liberate the, the marginalized and the oppressed from institutional uh, oppression. And um, that Jesus was the great liberator, uh, not spiritually, but literally from, from un- unjust institutions and entities, namely one of them being certainly the church. The church. And this, this took root and, and resonated with a great number of people in South America who were, in fact, experiencing a great deal of oppression and, and injustice, literal injustice. Um, that's really the, that's really the, the kernel of, of critical race theory as we get to it. It, it migrated to America, and, and in, in America it became what is called black liberation theology, and we're going to look at definitions of this in a minute. James Cone being the one who wrote uh, the, the, almost the Bible uh, for much of African-American theology today. What divides the white church and the black church is not color. People need to understand this. By and large, what separates the white church from the black church is not color, it's theology. It's doctrine, and doctrine should divide. Doctrine should be divisive. Otherwise, why don't we just be Mormons, Buddhists? And... But essential black or African American theology is rooted in black liberation theology. That Jesus' mission was to liberate the poor and the marginalized, the disenfranchised from institutions and groups that that have been oppressing them. It is basically a neo-Marxist theological movement that replaces the gospel and the mission of Jesus Christ with the liberation, a gospel of liberation. Now, that's a, a broad, a quick history of it, but just understand that, that this is not a, a, a new ideology. This has been around for a long time. In fact, you could probably trace it earlier than the 1960s. But the question for us in the church is, what's wrong with it? <laughs> what's wrong with it? I mean, think about it. Um, critical race theory. I mean, what, what, could, what could be wrong with it? Um, let's do this. Let's uh, uh, do definitions. Can we put the definitions up there? I think it's important that before we begin, we walk through, we define our terms and walk through some definitions. Um, the first one. Let's. You can go ahead and put them all up. Ideology. What's it, what's it, what do we mean by ideology? Ideology is a body of doctrine, a myth or belief that guides an individual, social movement, institution, class, or group. It is a it is a body of doctrine, and I would add that is deeply and passionately held. These are not just passing beliefs. An ideology is something that you are passionately committed to. A body of doctrine of belief that a person or a group is passionately committed to. Go ahead, honey, you can go and put them all up, if you would, for me. Worldview, a comprehensive conception or apprehension of the world, especially from a specific standpoint. I describe a worldview, think of the worldview as a lens through which you view the world. Remember, when I was growing up, we'd get uh, cereal boxes. And oftentimes on the back, there'd be a picture, and you put these glasses on, they were like, had a red, clear, you know what I'm talking about? Am I the only one that did Apple Jacks? Okay. And you put the glasses on, they had that red film, and and a completely different picture showed up. 
I thought that's a classic, that, that's a great example of what a worldview is. Depending upon what kind of glasses you put on, what kind of theoretical or philosophical or doctrinal lens you put on is how you view and interpret your world. Uh, we're going to be talking about, we're, we're talking about an ideology. We're talking about, when critical, we come to critical ethics, it's not just a belief, not just an ideology, but a whole way of viewing and interpreting reality and interpreting the world around us. This is, a, this is really a battle of worldviews. By the way, we have, all this was in, is in a handout on the back. You can grab one when you leave, okay? So, liberation theology, I went through this. It's a movement that's birthed in South America and tends to interpret scripture through the, really the lens of the plight of the poor and the oppressed. True followers of Jesus, according to liberation theology, must work toward a just society, bring about social political change, and align themselves with the working class. They, they, they teach that Jesus' mission was to liberate the poor and the oppressed, and that this is the lens through which they interpret all of Scripture. It is a blend of theology and Marxism. This was liberation theology. Uh, black liberation theology um, is simply an offshoot of liberation theology, and they, but they apply it uh, from the standpoint of race, particularly uh, African Americans. So it's basically liberation theology applied in America in a, in a, in a racial and political sense uh, focusing on the African American community. Now, critical race theory uh, is a Marxist ideology that seeks to divide the world into competing racial groups, oppressed and oppressors, and endorses active racial discrimination to achieve it, i.e., cultural Marxism. So, from my standpoint, uh, critical race theory really is the foundation, the ground, the ideology from which all of these different movements grow out of. Cultural Marxism, intersectionality, um, social justice, which Tom is going to be dealing with a great deal next week. Um, that's critical race theory. Critical race theory really is, is a neo-Marxist theology that divides humanity into two primary groups, oppressed and oppressors, um, and then uses race to, in fact, uh, attempt to what they believe to liberate the oppressed and the oppressors um, and, and again, it's warmed over uh, liberation theology just in an American context. Social justice, a movement related to and growing out of cultural Marxism that attempts to secure race-based equality of outcome. And, and that's, that's important. It advocates the use of both. Co- coercive cultural <laughs> forces, i.e. a cancel co- cancer culture. We have been so beat up and... and most Christians are scared to death about addressing any... Oh, Christians and non-Americans are scared to death to address any kind of race issues for fear of losing their job, losing their tenure, losing their position. It's cancel culture. Getting wiped off of Twitter, Facebook. Or, and... Coercive state actions. And we haven't seen a lot of that yet, but it's coming. No doubt that it is coming. So, these are some definitions. Don't worry about uh, writing them down. If you want, if you'd like them, I, they're on the back, the little black table in the back. You can, uh, you can grab those on your way out. So, let's talk now. What about, what's wrong with it? Number one, critical race theory is a, is a def, has a defective anthropology. What I call a defective anthropology. What's its doctrine of man? 
Well, as we just said, critical race theory um, divides humanity into two groups. Uh, the oppressed and the oppressors. They re, uh, def, redefine really our identity as primarily in those two groups, that the oppressors being white and the oppressed being black. <laughs> that is really foundational and essential to critical race theory. They, they divide humanity solely into two primary groups, the oppressed and the oppressors. What's wrong with that? Well, it's defective. It, it, it's not biblical. What does the Bible say? Everybody should know what Romans 3.23 is, right? What's Romans 3.23? For all have sinned. So what's one category that God, the Bible puts us in? Sinners. We are all sinners. Red and yellow, black and white. They are all sinners in His sight. You remember that song, right? Uh so that, that's first and foremost, is, is that we are all sinners. God does not... By the way, God is not colorblind. He's not. Um, he, he, he created <laughs> all of the peoples that we see today. In fact, this is number two. Is look at Acts 17.26. Turn to Acts 17.26. Well, we're going to... Focus on 26. We're going to start in 24. The God who made the world and all things in it. It's interesting. Um, Paul starts with God as creator. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Remember that this is Paul, the Areopagus in Athens, this great, this great sermon that he gave there. It says, nor is he served, verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And listen, and he made from one. Now, if you're reading from the New American Standard Version, man is in italics. And if you remember, one of the, 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 the things that the New American Standard uses is italics when they insert a word that's not, that, that it doesn't have a correspondence to an actual word. In the Greek text, but is implied, they will they will add. A, it's okay. It's, we've talked about translation before. That's not nothing wrong with that. Um, but they just indicate to you the word man is not there. If you are a textus receptus guy, uh, Sal, what does it say? Blood, blood. one blood. Um, whether it's blood or man, the, the, what he's saying is that there is only one race, and it's the what. The human race. There's only one race. There are not races. There's only one race. The human race. And the universal condition of that human race is what? Sin. We're all sinners. As David said, from conception. So God created one race. He created the human race, whether it's one man um, we all came from Adam, if that's what he means, or one humanity, one race. But then he goes on to say, having determined... Oh, he, and he made from one man every nation. This is ethnos. Nation, ethnos. Uh, and what English word do we get from ethnos? Ethnos. 
city, ethnicities. There's one race, but different ethnos. There's different ethnicities. There's a variety of ethnicities. But God does not divide us by races. There is no such thing as races, according to the Bible. There is one race and many ethnicities. One human race, different ethnicities. One could also say that ultimately we are all one race in the sense that we are all the Imago Dei. The, the, we are created in the image of God. We are all both believers and unbelievers, image bearers of the God of the Bible. So they have a defective theology. It is really a, a difference between cultural anthropology and biblical anthropology. In, in terms of critical race theory, the only sin they recognize is racism. And by the way, which their ideology commits to regularly. So one, what's wrong with critical race theory? It, it, it artificially and unbiblically and demonically divides humanity into races, particularly in their case, uh, black and white, one being the oppressor and one being the oppressed. We do not see this in the scriptures. So for a believer, at the very outset, for a believer to adopt or to support or to give cover to critical race theory, they are denying biblical anthropology. They are denying what the scriptures teach about the makeup of humanity. From the very outset. And I want to say shame on them. Number two. Not just a defective anthropology. But this is probably uh, maybe. I can't say none of these are more important than the other. A false gospel. I mean, again, I'm addressing critical race theory from a theological standpoint this morning, not a cultural standpoint. You got the article from Christopher Rufo. By the way, Christopher Rufo is really kind of, he's not a believer as far as I know. He's kind of a leading uh, opponent of critical race theory in our culture and is taking a great deal. Uh, you talk about oppression, this poor guy. Young guy, sharp guy. Um, and uh, how did I get on Christopher Rufo? Oh, the article, right, okay. I'm dealing from a... Th- thank you. I'm dealing from a... If I ever just, like, lose my mind up here, just feel free to... Vicky, would you just usher me out? And, uh, good point. What... What's... What's the, the, the gospel of critical race theory? The gospel is liberation from the oppressor class. Institutional liberation from the oppressor class. Using violence if necessary. What we've seen in our cities, anybody even following what's going on in South Africa? Uh, this, this ideology has no qualms about using violence. Any means necessary. Um, Violence, if necessary, and and redistribution of wealth. Uh, We need to understand, um, it it just boggles my mind how many professing Christians uh, think that reparations and redistribution of wealth is a great idea. uh, You talk about something that's unbiblical. Let let me just address it now. Turn to Deuteronomy. This This is, you know the old mic drop? This is God's mic drop on the whole issue of reparations. 
Okay? Uh, Deuteronomy 24.16. By the way, I'll put a plug in. We, we resume Wednesday night, this Wednesday, and we're going to be in the book of, book of Deuteronomy, so we'll be looking at some of these things more closely. Deuteronomy 24, verse 16. Fathers shall not be put to death for their sons. Uh, implications for their sons' sins. Nor shall sons be put to death for their father's sins. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin. What's, what's the general equity principle? You're responsible for your own sin, not for your father's sin. And God drops the mic. I'm not responsible for any of my forebears who perhaps maybe might have own slaves. Jeremiah 31 reiterates that fact. What is the gospel, though, of the Bible? By the way, critical race theory in the church, there is no cross. There is no Christ. What is the the gospel? What is our message? What is the gospel? 1 Corinthians 1. Again, you have that. 1 Corinthians 1. 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. When was the last time you heard a critical race theorist who claimed to be a believer preach Christ crucified? They don't. Because they have a different gospel. In this same book, really, the the definition of the gospel, chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, Paul said, Now make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more five hundred. Where do you find that in the, in, in the statements from critical race theory in the church? In fact, Paul, uh, with the Philippian jailer, what did he say to him? Believe. The Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. He didn't say, you know, you're a Roman guard, a Roman centurion, you've done a great deal of injustice to the oppressed class. And you need to open up your Roman checkbook and start writing out some drachmas. I don't know what what, what, was, what was the, I don't know, what was Roman? Pesos, yeah. <laughs> they did speak Spanish. But. Italian, no, Stal and I were talking about this, there's a lot of Similarities between Spanish and, and Latin. We've got a Latin teacher over here, so she's gone. <laughs> Number three, an unbiblical mission. It's critical race theory, again, I'm talking about in the church from a theological perspective. It has an unbiblical mission. It has a false view of Jesus' mission. Here's what they teach. And, and this is classic, standard liberation theology. That Jesus' mission was to come and to identify with the poor, to identify with the oppressed and the marginalized, and to liberate them from their from their the oppressive institutions and, and, and oppressive people. 
And that's exactly what Elsa Thomas's commentary in the book of James was. It was called The Scandalous Message of James. What does the Bible say Jesus' mission was? i never forget vacation Bible school when I was knee-high to a grasshopper, memorizing Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. And I have to do it in King James. Because I can't. It's that who was lost, that which was lost. Matthew one twenty one. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. First Timothy one fifteen. What does Paul say in his personal testimony? It says Jesus came to save sinners, of whom I am chief, foremost. What was Jesus' mission? To to liberate? Yes. But not from oppressive institutions. But to liberate sinners from sin and death. To liberate us from hell and give us heaven. He is the great liberator. But he's the liberator in the sense that he came to die on a cross to forgive us of our sin and give us eternal life. To liberate us from darkness and death in the kingdom of Satan and transfer us into the kingdom of his son. In fact, he gave the church that very mission. We've memorized it. We know it. Matthew 28, 18-20. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. Is there anything in there about liberation? Anything in there about the marginalized and the poor and the oppressed? He came to liberate us, all right, but to liberate us from, from the bondage to sin and death and from damnable heresies. And make no mistake about it, critical race theory is a damnable heresy. It is a doctrine of demons. Number four, it produces a false unity. How does critical race theory define Unity. They define it as equality of outcome. And all means and necessary to achieve that are on the table, including violence, including theft. Um, turn, if you would, to Ephesians 2. The early church was no stranger to racial tension. really technically to ethnic tension. Ephesians 2 verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you, who's the you? The Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. So they were calling each other names. Um, I suppose you could argue that the, the Jews were racist calling these dogs the uncircumcision. But look at, look at how Paul wraps it up. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What is it that produces unity 
What is the source of unity according to the Bible? The blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. How did He do that? By demanding reparations? By redistributing wealth? But by, no, by abolishing in His flesh, in His flesh, His death, the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinance that He Himself might make the two into one new man. Thus, establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enemy, enmity. True unity is found in the preaching of Christ crucified, the cross. The bottom line is we all come to the cross equal. We're all sinners. He came to die a death that we could never afford to die. He came to live a life that we could never live. He came to rise again that we might one day do the same. See, true lasting unity, true lasting transformation in terms of ethnic enmities is found in Christ and Christ alone. Galatians 3.28 There is neither slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile, male nor female. We're all one in Christ. They produce a false unity. And by the way, I might add, in, in most cases, a coerced unity. Not only is it a false unity, it's not true unity, but it's coerced. Number five, ungodly fruit. What did Jesus say when he was talking about false teachers, false prophets? You'll know them by their fruit. I mean, I mean obviously he's God. That's pretty good wisdom, right? And, and, and he says, we see this in nature, right? James talks about this. We see this in nature. We don't expect good trees to produce bad fruit or bad trees to produce fruit. It uh, is something that is consistent with the nature of the thing. So Jesus says you'll know them by their fruit. What is the fruit of critical race theory? Look at South Africa. Look at Portland, Oregon. Well, look at every major... Look at Denver, Colorado. What do we find? Disorder. Chaos. Destruction. Both literal destruction... And cultural destruction. Enmity. Ill will. Anger. Hatred. Vengeance. Um, Turn, if you would, to James chapter 3. We went through the book of James not long ago. James chapter 3. So if you think, you say, I'm not really a great thinker, I'm not into philo, philo I can't, don't grasp all these kind of, listen, all you do, just, just look at the fruit. Any kind of ideology, any movement, just look at the fruit. Look what it's producing. And you'll get a good idea whether it's biblical or not. James chapter 3, verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds, and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. 
Does the truth produce bitter jealousy and selfish ambition? No. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. Doctrines of demons. What about the Bible? Well, look at verse 17 and 18. By the way, he says, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there's disorder in every evil thing. If that's not a description of what's going on in our world right now, I don't know what is. Disorder and every evil thing. church needs to wake up, not become woke. They need to wake up. What about the Bible? Just look at verse 17, 18. But the wisdom from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. Man, if there is ever a description of the, of the, of the group that's in charge of our nation right now, is there a better word than hypocrisy? And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. It has a defective anthropology. It has a false gospel. It has an unbiblical mission. It produces a false unity and it manifests ungodly fruit. Why in the world would any professing believer in Jesus Christ have anything to do with critical race theory? That is both rhetorical and literal question. What's our conclusion? Really a couple things. If you turn to Colossians now. Um, what, what do I want you to uh, encourage you to take away from this morning? Colossians chapter 2. Beginning verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea, for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and stability of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted, now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you instructed and overflown with gratitude. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. He warns them, he says, I say all these things to you that no one would delude you, no one would deceive you by false reasoning with persuasive argument. This, all that's going on just is so persuasive. Who's opposed to social justice? Who doesn't think black lives matter? See, they, they, they phrase it and they define it, they, they, they categorize it in ways that just seem so nice and persuasive and so right. And people are being deluded. They're being deceived by false reasoning. And Paul is saying, first of all, you need to understand that these damnable heresies are seductive. 
They will deceive you with persuasive arguments. These arguments will seem attractive. They will seem plausible. They will seem loving. But in fact, he says, they are merely empty and deceptive words. He warns them, listen, there are going to be things that are going to seem awfully right and awfully good. But don't be deceived. Which leads to number two, and that critical race theory is not just seductive, it's destructive. Look at verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive. Um, different translations. I, li- I like actually I like King James here. Don't don't let someone what cheat you and spoil. You've heard of remember they go to battle and they're the spoils of war. What were the spoils of war? <laughs> the booty. <laughs> that word we can't say in church. No, it, what is booty? Spoils. Yeah, it was. They, they would they would loot and take all the valuable stuff. That's the word being used here. See, don't let these doctrines of demons, these these false teachers, these those who secretly slipped in among you, take you like they would spoils of war. You just become spoils of war. You've you've been conquered. This is a war. Do I have to say that? Paul has already told us this is a spiritual war. This is a war of the mind. This is a war of ideas and ideologies. It's destructive that we we can be taken captive by this. This is not morally or theologically neutral. In closing, turn to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 10. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. He's saying this is, this is, this is a spiritual battle. This is spiritual warfare. He says that in, in Ephesians in a different way. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. They're not human. They're not of human origin. But they are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. You know how long I grew up in church and they were, they were talking about demonic fortresses. And they, that's true. But typically they, they, they confine this verse to, you know, demon possession. You know, we, there, there was, a, there was a, a demon for every affliction we may have. You know, a demon of gluttony, the demon of greed. And, but look at verse 5. Verse 5 to tells us the nature of those fortresses. We are destroying speculations And every lofty thing, every arrogant thing, every boastful thing, raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking captive. (laughs) The turn of phrase. He said, I don't want you to be taken captive. I want you to be the one to take it captive. We are taking captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. You know, the interpretive question is, whose thoughts? We take our thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ in order that we might destroy speculations or by 
By us destroying speculations and every lofty thing, we are, we are taking their thoughts captive to Christ. It's, 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 it's unclear really what he's talking about here. I would tend to think that in this case it's both. He's saying we have to take our thoughts captive to Christ. We've got to know this. How often do we read this? And not just read it, but study it and know it. Every thought that we think must be, we must think God's thoughts after him. That we wouldn't be like sheep and lemming and, and, and we have someone, you know, teaching our church and stand in a, I was going to say stand in the pulpit, pulpits are, uh, and, and, and talk about critical race theory and we clap and we cheer when we should be throwing stones. But I don't have deep feelings about it. I'm just guys, I, 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 I went through this this morning not thinking that any of us have bought into critical race theory. All I've wanted to do is try to give you, hopefully give you some ammunition. Um, in, in the back, your handout, it's called Definitions. You can take those with you for what it's worth. Um, if, you, if you'd like an outline, I, as before, I can send that out to you. But the bottom line is this. Um, it's going to take a great deal of courage. Um, I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet. God has not spoken to me. God has already spoken to me and to you. Um, listen, I think that in the coming days, weeks, months, years, and I probably for the rest of my life, it's going to take a great deal of courage to stand for biblical values in the biblical gospel in the church with church people. It's going to take courage. And, and we're going to be, and it's going to take courage out there. We're going to be willing to be called stupid. We're going to have to be, take courage when they say, as I was told in King Supers, you're killing people. It's going to take courage. But not courage in and of ourselves. But courage in, in that we stand for what's true and right and biblical. And we, like Martin Luther, can do, can do none else. That's all we can do. It, it is to stand for truth and righteousness and what the Bible teaches. And we do it with courage. We do it with resolution. And we stand against these damnable heresies that, are, that have crept into the church. They, by, by the way, they have completely, completely apostatized the Southern Baptist Convention. If any of you have been following that at all. Guys, critical race theory is a threat. From a human standpoint, it's a threat. But in another sense, it's not a threat. Not to the true, true church. Not to true believers. Yes, we can be deceived. But I'm, I'm here to tell you, uh, the church has, uh, has outlasted and grown and thrived beyond all world powers, all world emperors, all dictators. And this group and what's going on in our world today is, is small change. Um, but it's going to require, at the same time, uh, it's going to require his people to be able to discern and stand for truth and have the courage to stand for truth uh, amidst a, a huge cultural and theological tidal wave that is coming against us. All right?
Let's pray. Father, uh, we, we thank you for your word, without which we would be groping in the dark at best. At worst, we would in fact be adopting um, these unbiblical, demonic worldviews and ideologies. So, Father, we thank you for your steadfast, unmovable, unchangeable word. Now I pray you'd grant us great wisdom, discernment, and courage to stand against uh, the wave uh, of, this, uh, of this movement, this ideology uh, that has is, uh, is infiltrated your church. And may we help rescue, as Jude said, help rescue those who uh, have been deceived by this movement. So, Father, again, thank you for this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand and join hands?